please turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1. Second Peter chapter one. Perhaps you've been to museums in the past where they have collections of jewels, gems, crowns, precious stones that are very rare, and they are hidden under glass, they are protected by guards, and They are watched over very carefully because they are very precious, very valuable, and men put the highest worth upon such things, and they are of very great cost. They are precious to men. There are three things that the Apostle Peter calls precious in this passage. They are not earthly jewels, crowns. They are things of infinitely greater value than anything that men can possess on earth. They are things that are revealed in the Bible, and they are things that belong only to believers. And they belong not just to some believers, but they belong to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the three things that are precious to Peter are first the blood of Christ. Back in chapter 1 of his first letter, Peter said that we have been redeemed from our sinful, from our futile way of life with precious blood, with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished the blood of Christ. And the second thing that is regarded by Peter as most precious is our faith, which he says it is more precious than gold, which is perishable. And then the third thing which was precious to Peter was the promises of God in his word, which is what we read of here in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, in the beginning of the verse where he says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. The promises of God in the Bible, they are precious and they are magnificent. And they are precious and magnificent because they come from God and They assure us of the good and the blessing which he intends to bring upon all of his people. The precious and magnificent promises of God, they reveal the future to us. They tell us of eternal realities which are of infinite worth. And they tell us of things that we could never know except God reveal them to us in his word, in a promise. And God's precious and magnificent promises, they are not just statements of his intentions, his kind intentions. They are not just statements of his desires. They are promises. They are promises. And so we can be certain we are sure that they will come to pass because the great God will exert his power to fulfill every word of his promises and none of his words will ever fail Three things, Peter says, are precious, and they should be precious to all of us who believe the blood of Jesus, which was shed upon the cross to take away our sins, the precious blood of Jesus, 
And then our faith, which is the gift of God to us, it is very precious as well. And the precious and magnificent promises of God. All three of these are tied together. They are dependent upon one another. There could be no promises without the precious blood of Jesus. All the promises were purchased by him. All the promises are guaranteed by his blood. And faith is very precious. We must always be looking to the blood of Jesus by faith. We must always come to the promises of God by faith. And so the blood of Jesus, our faith, and the promises of God are always together. The Bible is filled with the promises of God. From the beginning to the end, from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, we find the promises of God. We may say the Bible itself is a book of promises. We cannot see all the promises in even a long series of sermons. There are too many. There are too great these promises. We'll look at just a couple of categories of promises this morning and then again this evening. There are promises in the Bible that are unique to certain individuals, such as the promise of, to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son. And God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he said, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. And, and then he promised Sarah, he said, at the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. Those are promises that are unique and they are given specifically to Abraham and Sarah, we would not go to those promises and apply them to ourselves. But there are a great many other promises which belong to all the people of God. And we should go to those promises because they are given to us and they are for our use and for our benefit. Spurgeon said the promises of God to us are like a blank check. And we go by faith and we write our name upon that check. And then we send that up into heaven by prayer and we wait to hear and to see the answer to them. So we look at two categories of promises this morning. And the first is promises of support in all of our trials, promises of support in all our trials. We'll turn in the first place to the book of Hebrews chapter four. Hebrews chapter four. And we read in verse 14 through 16, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. In verse 14, the writer introduces the main theme of his letter, which is 
the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is superior to all. He is the great high priest of his people. The Jewish people in the Old Testament, they had high priests who would enter within the veil of an earthly temple in Jerusalem. But we have a far greater high priest who has passed through the heavens, he says, and he has one who has entered into the heavenly tabernacle, into the very presence of God, and he is our great high priest. And our high priest is much more than a mere man. He is Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens. And the fact that he has passed through the heavens and he is now in the presence of God assures us of two things. First, that his sacrifice on the cross was fully accepted by God the Father so that we ourselves are welcomed into the presence of God. All of our sins have been taken away. And secondly, his intercession in heaven assures us that he will be effectual with all of his power for us in all of our needs here on earth. Someone might think that because Jesus has ascended into glory, that he no longer has any capacity to sympathize with us in the midst of our trials and in the midst of our weakness here on earth. But the apostle assures us in verse 15 that the very opposite is true. He gives a double negative there, and in the beginning of verse 15, he says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. And he gives that double negative as a strong affirmation that he is able to sympathize, and he will sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses and needs. It is not merely that it is possible for him to sympathize with us, but it is impossible that he cannot sympathize with us is the meaning. So here we are on earth in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our struggles, and we have much weakness that is manifested in the midst of them, but we can be certain that Jesus is a sympathizing high priest with us in heaven. He is touched on the throne of glory with the feeling of our infirmity. He is far removed on that throne, but he is still with us. And he knows all that we pass through. And he is able to do so because at the end of verse 15, it says that he has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He has passed through the same trials, temptations that we experience here. And he still remembers what he passed through as he is the great high priest in heaven. And so he still sympathizes with us as he remembers his own life of trial and great difficulty. And because we have such a high priest, the writer tells us in verse 16, he says, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Let us, this is the exhortation, let us now, this is what we should do. Therefore, because we have such a great high priest who has been given to us, he says, let, let us draw near. To draw near is to come to him in worship and in prayer. And we are to do so, he says, with confidence, with boldness. Because of the blood of Jesus that has taken away our sin, God the Father is fully reconciled to us, and so we may come to the throne of God in heaven with great confidence and with boldness. The throne of God, he says, is now to the throne of grace. 
An amazing statement because God's throne, before we became Christians, God's throne was a throne of judgment to us. God's throne was a throne of terror to us because we were in our sins. But when we were converted to Christ, then the throne of God became to us the throne of grace. The throne of grace so that we may come to him and find grace there. Mercy, kindness, and all things that we need. A most remarkable statement. We may draw near because of the work of Jesus. He has so completely dealt with our sins, as he will tell us in chapter 10. He has made us perfect by his one sacrifice that we may draw near to this throne of God in heaven. And there are two things that we are to receive and find there. At the end of verse 16, he says that we may receive mercy. There is mercy there for us because Jesus sits upon that throne. We are always in need of mercy, and we may always receive mercy. We have so many sins day by day, but there is always mercy for us to receive. And the second thing we are to come to find that we may find grace to help in time of need. Grace, that's what we need, grace. Grace is divine assistance Grace is a very broad term. It includes every kind of supernatural, divine help and assistance that we need. The help of God to us by the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to continue to live the Christian life and to persevere to the end. He calls it grace to help in time of need. Because there are certain times There are certain times in life where the trials become more intense and the trials are so burdensome and heavy. There are times when difficulties and obstacles increase, it seems. They press heavy upon us. Temptations are severe. We feel broken, overwhelmed by our trials. These are the times of need. That he speaks of here. And when those times of need come. Very great need to us. There is grace he says to help us. To strengthen us. To aid us. To support us. In such times of need. The idea is that there is grace from Jesus. That is suitable to us. In all of our particular circumstances and trials that we pass through. There is grace that is seasonable, timely. There is grace that is especially fitted, made to aid us in the peculiar trial that we are passing through. When we need it and how we need it most. We may go through a trial and there is a certain kind of grace that we need under that trial. But then we pass through in a completely different trial and there is an entirely different kind of grace that we need. The grace of one trial is not the grace needed in another trial. Sometimes we are downcast, depressed. And we feel we are sinking in despair. We need comfort. We need hope. We need encouragement. Christ has that grace for us from heaven. 
Sometimes our spirits are greatly troubled. We are confused. We are perplexed. We need peace. We need consolation. Christ has that grace for us as well. Sometimes we are very tired, weary. We need rest for our souls. And he says, come unto me and I will give you rest for your souls. And he has strength to uphold us when we are weary. Sometimes we wander from his ways and he is able to restore us. Sometimes we are in the darkness, it feels, and he is able to send us light, whatever grace that we need. In any time of trial, he has that grace for us. We may need patience and perseverance. We may need wisdom. We are always able to obtain the grace that we need. And that's what's promised to us here, the the divine support for whatever trial and temptation we are in. Notice, he says at the end of verse 16, that we may find, that we may find grace. What that means is that we find grace that we did not know existed before. There are some times in life where we find something. We did not know it existed. We perhaps did not even know such a thing was present. But we go to the throne of grace under whatever trial that we are in, and this is what we find. We may find whatever grace that is needed for us. And there is never any lack of supply of grace from our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever the need may be, no matter how many times we have gone to him before, no matter how much grace we may have received from him before, we can never lose heart because there is an infinite supply of grace for us from him in heaven. We may always come and receive grace from our high priest, new and fresh supplies of grace. Many times, many times we do not even know what we need, but he does. And he has the grace that we need. He has passed through all of our temptations and trials. He sympathizes with us and he is able to send to us the grace that we need in any peculiar trial. Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said that the Lord had given him a thorn in the flesh. He said it was a messenger of Satan to buffet him, to keep him from exalting himself. He entreated the Lord three times that it might be removed from him. And the answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. The Lord did not take away the thorn, but he promised him to give him grace to uphold and strengthen him through it. The Hebrew Christians to whom this letter was written, they were in time of great need. They were under persecution, very intense, driven out from their homes. Their earthly possessions were taken from them. Some of them were in prison. They were tempted to turn back from the Christian life and return to Judaism. And that's why the apostle says at the end of verse 14, he says, let us hold fast our confession. Let us not turn back from confessing our commitment to Christ. And these Hebrew Christians, they could receive grace as well and help and power from Jesus in heaven. So we have that exhortation, let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy that we need 
and grace to help us in time of need. The promise is not that they would be delivered from their trials necessarily. The promise is that they would receive the help they needed in the midst of it. We find other such promises in the Bible in many different places. Promises of grace to support us. Psalm 9 and verse 9, the Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, a refuge, a place where we may go and find safety and protection when everything seems to be coming undone around us. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. When the mountains shake and go down into the sea, when everything seems to be collapsing, he is our refuge and our strength and a very present help in time of trouble. Psalm 37 and verse 39, he is their strength in time of trouble. We have a well-known passage. We'll just turn to it briefly in Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah and chapter 43. In verses 1 and 2, the Lord says in verse 1, But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. He formed us. He formed us in our mother's womb. And he's made us his people by his new creation, by his power at work in us. He says, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. That's what he's done for us in the blood of the cross. I have redeemed you. I have called you. I have called you through the gospel. I have called you by name and you are mine. You now belong to me. So what does that mean that we now belong to him? He tells us in verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the, what seems to be the most severe trials that you can ever experience in this world, and you feel that you are drowning under the waters of those trials, he says, do not fear, you will not drown, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Go through the fiery trials of this present life, and we feel that we will be harmed by the fire all around us. But the great God of heaven promises his protection, I will give you grace in time of need, and the fires, the flames will not burn you or harm you. So we have here this promise of his presence and his protection and his support in the midst of the trials of life. A second category of promises we'll consider this morning is promises of deliverance from our trials. We've seen support God's upholding us in our trials. Now we come to promises of deliverance from our trials and we turn to Psalm 34, which we read earlier back in Psalm chapter 34. And we can see in the title of the Psalm that it was written by David when he went to before King Abimelech, he feigned madness 
It was a time of great fear for David. He was running from Saul who was trying to put him to death and David went off into the heathen land of Gath. He found himself in the presence of the king of Gath, of King Abimelech. He was afraid that Abimelech would harm him, so he disguised his sanity and acted like a madman, and he was scribbling on the doors of the gate and letting saliva come down into his beard. And it was a time in David's life where no matter where he went, there seemed to be no place of safety. There seemed to be no rest, no place for him to hide. And later, in remembrance of God's deliverance, from that time, he wrote this psalm. In the first six verses, he speaks of how the Lord dealt with him as an individual. He says in verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And then down in verse 6, he says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles That's what happened to David. That was his own personal experience. But based on his own experience, now in verse 7, David now encourages all the people of God with various promises. He says in verse 7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. The Lord has thousands and thousands of angels that surround his throne in heaven. They are holy. They are mighty beings. They are far superior to us. They are sent out by God on whatever mission he sends them to. And he sends them to minister to us as his people for our protection and our aid. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, we read of the angels And the writer says, and are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So the angels are sent from the throne of God to protect his people. We might not know that they are there. We do not see them. We may not know when and how, but they are sent out, we are told, from the throne of God for our safety, for our protection, who will inherit salvation to bring us safely to the end. We find examples of the angels of God being sent out in the Bible. Jacob, when he was traveling on his way to meet Esau after many years, he was afraid of what Esau would do to him. And we read that the angels of God met him and protected him. And he said, this is God's camp. You remember when the prophet Elijah was in the city of Dothan and the city was surrounded by the enemy army and Elijah's servant became filled with fear. Elijah prayed and the Lord opened his eyes and they looked and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. They were the angels of the Lord sent from heaven to rescue Elijah. And David tells us here in verse 7 that the angels are sent down, not just for great saints like Jacob and Elijah and David himself, but they are sent for all his people, for those who fear him. The angel of the Lord, he says, encamps around those who fear him. Now, the angel of the Lord is singular. 
And most would believe that this is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate presence and manifestation of Christ before he came in human flesh in the Old Testament. Whatever way we may understand the verse, whether it is the Lord himself, which is promised to us in Hebrews chapter 5, he promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's true. Or whether it is, we may understand multitudes of angels that are sent out on these missions to protect his people. Whatever way, it makes no difference. It is still true. And the word here, encamp, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. The word encamp is a military term. It speaks of an army that would go out and surround a village that was in danger by enemies. And the, the army would set up its encampments around the village. The army would set up the fortress to protect that village. And that's what the angel of the Lord does. And the angels come and they encamp and rescue us. David says here that that's what happened to me when I was in that danger from Saul and from Abimelech. And he attributes his deliverance not to his own skill or ingenuity or wisdom or strength. He, he attributes his deliverance only to the Lord who could do such a great thing. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And David says this is what he does for all of his people. And when he does it, what does he do? Why does he come and encamp around us? The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And then what? And he rescues them. He rescues them. He delivers them. He brings them out of their danger and their fears and their troubles. Back in verse 6, this poor man cried, the Lord heard him. And saved him out of all his troubles. And this is how it happened. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. If we look down to verse 17 through 19. David says in verse 17. The righteous cry and the Lord hears. And delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them, delivers him out of them all. Verse 19, he tells us that, that the, the righteous, they pass through many afflictions in this life. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. All kinds of afflictions we are exposed to. Continuously, there are physical afflictions. There are diseases and sicknesses and even death. There are spiritual afflictions of the evil one. As we live in this world where he rules as the God of this world, there are trials, temptations, there are persecutions, there are tragedies, calamities, there are losses that come upon us, there are dangers that swirl around us at times. We are completely unaware of them at times. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. It might seem like a contradiction. Because we could say, well, how can it be that the righteous experience so many afflictions? The righteous, they are the ones the Lord Jesus loves, are they not? The righteous, they are his people on earth. How can they experience so many afflictions? 
Many, many are the afflictions of the righteous, not of the wicked, but the righteous. How can this be? The answer is that the afflictions that we experience in this life, they are a testing, a proving of our faith. Faith must be tested, and our afflictions test and prove our faith. Our commitment to Christ must be tested. That's what was going on with Job. When he passed through so many trials, would Job simply serve the Lord, Satan said, because he was so rich and had so many blessings? His commitment to God had to be tested by the trials and the afflictions that he passed through. And so it is with us to prove that we are not serving him for simply earthly things, but for who he truly is and for his eternal blessings. Our trials prove that we will not turn away from him in times of trouble. Our trials are a part of our sanctification and our preparation for the world to come. There are many tribulations we must pass through before we enter the kingdom of heaven. We are citizens of heaven already, but we are still in this sinful world and we are passing through enemy territory and silver, silver must be refined of its dross and we must be purified from our remaining sin and sanctified. And this is what our afflictions, our many afflictions are as we continue on toward the kingdom of heaven. But through all of our many afflictions, the Lord promises us. Not only many are the afflictions of the righteous there in verse 19, but he says, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. We can never lose heart. No matter how great our afflictions may seem to be to us, no matter how pressing, how overwhelming they may be, and they seem to threaten us at times, yet God is greater than all of our afflictions, and he is able to deliver us easily, quickly, at any time according to his will. It takes infinite wisdom for God to send trials upon us. He must. There is no easy way to heaven. If we, choose, if we chose our trials, what would we choose? What would we choose? We would, we would choose a nice, easy bed of roses and then go to heaven in the end. That's not the way. That's not the way to heaven. It is through the many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul said in Acts chapter 14 and verse 22. And it takes infinite skill in providence from God's throne to send the particular trials upon each one of us individually. In this room, we have not so many people, but we have many different types of trials. And yet they are all sent by God individually, particularly to us. And he is working all things out for our good. Romans 8, verse 28, that we might be conformed to the image of his Son, and then Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Such as is common to man. And other men have passed through these very same kinds of trials. And we might add to that as well what Paul says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, that Christ himself has been tempted in all things, common to him as well. And then he says, And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, 
but with the temptation will provide the way of escape by his grace and help and presence that you may be able to endure it. So he has to send these trials, but he does so in such a way that he also gives us the way of escape and so that we are not crushed completely under them and he upholds us through them. And he does so with such infinite skill that he brings us safely into his eternal presence. He may not deliver us at the particular time that we wish he would, as quickly as he, we wish he would. He may not deliver us in the way we wish that he would, but he will. And he may not even deliver us out of some of our trials in this present life, but he will deliver us ultimately and finally from all sin, all sorrow, grief, danger of this present world, he will bring us ultimately into heaven in the end. That's the final deliverance. So we need to be those who are righteous in verse 19. We see in verse 17, he says, the righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. We have those characteristics of the righteous. They cry. That's what they do. They pray. The righteous are always a praying people. And when they pray, the Lord hears, the Lord hears them in heaven. And then he delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord delivers them out of all their troubles. Back in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. It is a promise to us. We must be those who walk in the fear of God and be those who have great respect, the highest possible respect for him and who he is. And we can fear him with joy as well and confidence. John Calvin says on verse 7, he says, however great the number of our enemies and danger by which we are surrounded may be. He says, yet the angels of God are armed with invincible power, constantly watching over us, and they array themselves on every side to aid and deliver us from all evil. And that's what we read in Psalm 91 and verse 11. He will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. So the angels are armed with invincible power, and they array themselves all around us to guard us and to deliver us. Back in verse 17, the righteous cry, the Lord hears. What a privilege it is for us to cry, the Lord hears our prayers. Our voices go up to the great God in heaven who rules all of providence and who cares for us and loves us. 
and he is able to accomplish his will in the heavens above and on the earth beneath, and he hears, he inclines his ears to hear our voices as we pray. We read back in verse 615, he says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cries. The eyes of the Lord are looking down upon us toward the righteous. And what that means is that the eyes of the Lord, they are looking down upon us continually and they are always looking down upon us with pleasure and delight because we are the righteous in his sight who walk in his ways and believe in his beloved son, Jesus. We are not the righteous because we are so good. No. We are the righteous because of the righteousness of Christ that's been given to us and the Holy Spirit and a new heart that enables us to walk in his ways, though not perfectly, yet sincerely. That's what the righteous are here. And the eyes of the Lord are always looking down with pleasure and his ears are open to their cry to hear them. And then in verse 17, at the end of the verse, he hears and he delivers them out of all their troubles. The righteous in verse 17, they are described in verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous here are the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit under the trials that they have passed through. The word brokenhearted there is used three times in the Bible, in the Old Testament. The first time, one time is right here. Another time is found in Psalm 147 and verse 3 that he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. So here, here we read that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He comes and makes himself known and present with them, the brokenhearted. But then in Psalm 147, we read that he heals. So he is near to heal and to bind up their wounds. And who is it specifically who does that great work? It is the Lord Jesus. Because the third time the word is found in the Old Testament is in Psalms, in Isaiah 61 in verse 1. The spirit of the Lord, Jesus says, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me and he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. So he is near to the brokenhearted. He is present with them to heal them and to bind up their wounds by the Holy Spirit, by the word of God. He does this great work. And so we have many promises in the Bible of our deliverance. God is to us a God of deliverance, Psalm 68 and verse 20. And to God the Lord belongs escapes from death. We have many examples. These words here in Psalm 17, they have already been fulfilled in the lives of saints throughout the history of God's people. We remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those three young Hebrew men, and they were captives in the land of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar set up his golden altar, commanded the people to bow down and serve the golden altar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, we must obey God rather than man. They said, we will not bow down to your golden idol. They said, our God is able to deliver us and our God will deliver us. But we will not bow down to your golden idol. Nebuchadnezzar called for the furnace to be heated seven times and threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego down into the fiery furnace. And then he came and looked into the window and what did he find? He, find, he found a fourth man in there, like a son of man, like a son of God. And it was Jesus who had come to rescue them out of that fiery furnace and 
Their hair was not singed, their trousers were not damaged, there was not even the smell of smoke upon them when he rescued them out of that fiery furnace. So it will be when we go to heaven. When we go to heaven, we will not have anything, any harm left upon us in this present world. We will be made perfect and glorious like our Lord Jesus Christ. The same thing happened to Daniel when they threw him into the lion's den. God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions and Daniel was delivered with no harm. We remember the apostles in that little boat in the midst of the sea. And the fierce storm came down at night and the wind and the waves began to kick up and the wind put the waves into the boat and the disciples, they were experienced fishermen. They thought they were perishing. They, they thought the end had come to us now in this boat. Jesus is sleeping in the boat. They went to him and they woke him up and they said, Lord, Lord, do you not see that we are perishing? We are perishing here. And Jesus stood and he said, hush, be still. And the wind ceased and the waves were calm and they were rescued from their trial. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. The righteous cry, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. We can look at our Lord Jesus Christ. And he was the perfect man. And he was surely a righteous man, as the psalm speaks of. And he was surely a man of prayer who cried to the Lord. And the Lord always heard his prayers. Verse 17 was true for him. The righteous man, Jesus, cried. The Lord heard and delivered him out of all his troubles. Verse 19 was true with him as well. Many were his afflictions of the Lord Jesus. We read of when he went into the synagogue in Nazareth in his hometown and he began to read from the scriptures that all in the synagogue were angry, filled with rage at him and they tried to grab him and throw him off the hill and the Lord delivered him and he passed through their midst and went on his way. Other times he would come to the temple in Jerusalem for the feast and the scribes and the Pharisees would try to trap him in his words. They would send men. They were trying to seize him and put him to death. Many were the afflictions of the Lord Jesus, but the Lord delivered him out of them all. And then he came into the Garden of Gethsemane on his last night. And he was a man who cried to the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. Very fervently, Luke tells us, and sweat was falling like drops of blood down upon the ground, and he was crying to the Lord, Father, if thou art willing, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. And it was not the Father's will that that cup would be taken from him. And Jesus was arrested, and he was scourged, and he was beaten, and then he was crucified, and he hung upon the cross, and so terrible was it that the Son of God was hanging upon a cross for human sin that the sun was shut down and there was no light in the land. And Jesus felt abandonment and cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he continued to suffer until his last cry. He said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he bowed his head and breathed his last. And his disciples came and took him down, a lifeless corpse, and they wrapped him 
in linen cloths, and they laid him in a tomb. In that dark and cold tomb lie the dead body of Jesus. And if you and I were to stand outside that tomb and see who it was that lie in there, and then we were to look at these promises in verse 17 and verse 19, we would say to ourselves, what has happened to the promise? What has happened to this promise? That the righteous cry of the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles? Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. How can these promises be fulfilled? Here is Jesus lying in a tomb and he is dead, crucified. Has the Father forgotten his word? Have the promises failed, we would say? But the tomb of Jesus was not the end of the story. And on the third day, God the Father raised him from the dead, and then he ascended him back into heaven and gave him glory, power, and dominion to sit at his right hand in a name that is above every name forever. And there he is now, exalted to be the great high priest. So what do we say about the promises? Yes, the promises have been fulfilled in Jesus, and God is faithful to every word that he has spoken. And so we must pray and we must have faith in the promises and we must have patience in the promises as we wait for all of them to be fulfilled. They will be fulfilled in the end. Just as we would probably do before the tomb of Jesus, just like the disciples seem to have done, they wondered, they thought, what has happened to him? He's gone. The whole thing is over. That's what they thought. And we would probably say the same. And we would probably often, we often do say the same thing about ourselves in our afflictions and in our troubles. But we should not lose heart because as it was done with Jesus, so it will be done with us as well. And in the end, we will be exalted. And we will be able to say as we look back upon all of our troubles in this present life that these words are true for us. However the Lord brings it about, the righteous cry, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Let's pray together. Our Father and gracious God in heaven, thank you for the many promises, precious and magnificent promises that you have given to us in your word. And thank you that we have such a great high priest in heaven who, to whom we may go at any time of need and find mercy and grace to help us. And thank you that we have these promises that you look upon us from heaven with your eyes and you rejoice to see us in your ways and you will hear and you will help us and you will finally deliver us from all of our troubles. Lord Jesus, help us to live in confidence of these things. Give us the help by the Holy Spirit, by the word of God, that we would be faithful to you and walk in your ways and love you. And may you watch over us and have such great mercy upon us. Be with all of us now. Bless your word to each one of us according to our need. Be at work in our souls for our good. And we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.